توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای سلام in the name of the god of rainbows welcome to woman life freedom all in on iran a podcast series in which we'll go deep in conversations with experts on various aspects of the revolutionary uprising that began in Iran in September when 22-year-old Mahsa Jina Amini was killed in morality police detention. In each episode, we'll unpack an important aspect of the unfolding of this historic moment in Iran. I'm your host, Nahid Siamdus, an assistant professor of media and Middle East studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Our intention is to quote-unquote archive the important insights of our experts here and now, both in their capacity as professional observers as well as humans living through these momentous times. Stay tuned. This week we'll be speaking with Fatima Shams, poet and assistant professor of Persian literature at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Fatima Shams is also the author of A Revolution in Rhyme, Poetic Co-option Under the Islamic Republic, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. She earned her PhD from the University of Oxford and before joining Penn, has taught Persian language and literature in various academic institutions. But first, a quick recap of the timeline. Today is Friday, February 10th, just a day ahead of the 44th anniversary of the 1979 revolution. Um, some news items are the freeing of Farhad Meisami from Evin prison following the leaking of photos of him completely em- emaciated from months of a hunger strike. He was imprisoned in 2019 for opposing compulsory hijab for women. Also today, there's an opposition coalition meeting and press conference happening at Georgetown, where Reza Pahlavi, Masih Ali Nijad, Hamid Ismailoun, and Nozanina Bonyadi are presenting their view forward for Iran and taking question. There are lots of campaigns on social media trying to get Iranians to gather together over the weekend to oppose the Islamic Republic, go on demonstrations against the Islamic Republic on the occasion of the revolution's anniversary. Hello, hello, Professor Fatima Shams. It's wonderful to have you on the Woman Life Freedom podcast. Hello, Dr. Siam Dusta Aziz. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Fatima John, you are a celebrated poet and an assistant professor of Persian literature at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Shams is a specialist in Persian literature. She's been very active also, a very sort of vocal voice in these last almost five months since the Woman Life Freedom Movement started in Iran in September. And you've been a voice that's really been present in both in sort of the Persian social media space, but also on Western and English language media spaces, really just trying to explain to a lot of observers who are not as familiar with what's happening in Iran, and some who are even just about the processes that have been going on in Iran. So it's a real pleasure to have you here on this podcast. And of course, to draw on your expertise also as somebody who 
both writes poetry and teaches Persian literature. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. I really, this podcast is really about weaving in the personal into the political and really not separating them as much as we sometimes tend to do in academic work. And so I really want to start by asking you about your own background and coming of age in Iran. I feel like among the guests that I have and will be interviewing, your story somehow resonates the most with what's been happening in Iran. We, of course, first met in Oxford when we were both doing our doctorates there and luckily have kept in touch. And I've seen you go through this progression. And I wonder if this thought has ever occurred to you yourself and if you could just comment on your own trajectory and the trajectory of this movement in Iran. Yeah, sure. So thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here and to be in conversation with you. I suppose I I start by saying that I was born and bred in one of the most conservative cities of Iran, Mashhad, where I also came of age. And at the age of 17, I moved to Tehran, to the capital, to study Persian literature for a year, and then after that, sociology. And it was at Tehran University that I really became involved in political activities and the student movement at the time. And within those years, during the presidency of Mohammad Khatami, probably you remember that there were a lot of hopes in change and transformation. And student movement within those years also paid a huge price for for freedom that is still an ongoing struggle for the Iranians to this day. That was really the first most important exposure to the political scene for me. And during from that time to this day, as you mentioned, I have gone through quite a lot in terms of personal and, and also political and professional life. So during the time when I was still in Iran, I was heavily involved in the student movement. And, and during the 2009 Green Movement, I was also heavily involved in the protests and also I was part of the campaign for the reformist opposition figure, Mir Hussein Musavi. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that during those years, there was still this hope for being able to, to reach the goal, which was changing the political structure of the country by negotiating with the power, by exercising this sort of your civil rights, which part of it was taking part in the election. And I was, it was that hope that kept us going, although there was no agreement or alliance between, between the opposition figures and those of us who were born and raised after the revolution. There was always, we always wanted something more, but at the same time, there was this perception that the only way to to reach those goals and to realize those goals is to to try and try for change from within the system. The aftermath of the 2009 protests was quite costly for me personally. I my immediate family members were jailed at the time and I was quite vocal from outside the country. And at some point, about a year after the rise of the Green Movement, I decided to to publicly unveil. And as a result of that, my personal relationship, my marriage, a lot of my long 
long-term friendships were affected by that Mm -hmm. decision. It was a really difficult period in terms of finding my new path in life. I wanted to be who I wanted to be, not who I was supposed to be, Mm -hmm. according to other people including those who were closest to me. I remember that from the age of 14, I had to fight against this patriarchy in in my life. And it wasn't the first time that I was voicing my protest. But I would say after the 2009 movement, it was for the first time that I found the courage to go public about this. The consequence of that was, of course, a huge smear campaign that was launched mainly by the, by the regime on their social media platforms. I was also the target and subject of a lot of criticism by the reformists mm-hmm. inside the country who perceived my act of rebellion and defiance as a sort of betrayal to the mm-hmm. values of the Green Movement that According to them, it was partly it was to be loyal to to what they considered to be the values of the movement, which always was really vague to me and obscure to me that who really defined those values mm-hmm. and since when one of the values is to define the bodily autonomy of women. So within the past 13 years, um, and as a result of that kind of public smear campaign, for a while I decided to kind of abandon political activities and just pursue my academic work, which I did for the most part until five months ago that everything turned mm-hmm. upside down again as a result of the state murder of Gina Amini in Iran. And as you mentioned, the personal, I always believe that personal is political. And I always mm-hmm. think that when you're coming from a country where the state has its hands on pretty much every single aspect of your life and it controls everything, it also reinforces the patriarchal structure of the family, then to say that I'm apolitical in itself is a heavily political statement in my, opi- in my opinion. And the past five months has been, in a way, the repetition of a trauma, not just for me, mm. I think, for many Iranian women who really mm. started the fight against patriarchy and misogyny from their households since very young age. And part of it is, of course, tra- traumatizing to constantly remember all those single moments in your childhood, in your teenagehood, in your youth, Mm -hmm. that you you rebelled against signs of patriarchy in your life, Mm -hmm. everything coming to a head finally, and then you see that being manifested, all those moments being manifested in the bodies of these defiant women and girls who have mm-hmm. taken to the streets over the past five months and burned their headscarves. It's just a moment of, I think, also empowering empowerment and liberation, in a sense, which has come at a very heavy cost. Yeah, for sure. And I know at the time, I'm, I want get, to get to the Women Life Freedom Movement and the significance of these months both for you and also examining some of the slogans and poetry. But I just want to mention that at the time of the 2009 Green Movement, since that seems to have been really your first political awakening and your mm-hmm. becoming active in the political field, 
in Iran in a very visible way, at least. I know you had been active as a student. And at the time when the 2009 Green Movement happened, you published a volume of work, Hasht or Hasht, 88, referring to the year 2009 in the Persian solar calendar, um, translated into English as when they broke down the door. And you have a poem there. Um, so yeah, I would love, Fatima John, if you could just read for us your poem, Azadi, Freedom. It'll be in Persian. We won't do a line-by-line translation of it, but we'll give a sense of what this poem is about. Sure, yeah. This was one of the poems, as you mentioned, that I wrote in the aftermath of the 2009 Green Movement, and it's called Azadi. Usahayam ra furukhtam, khateratam ra شعرهایم را سوزاندم چمدانم را برداشتم و رفتم به قیمت یک عمر آزادی It is it is a stunning short poem I sold my kisses I and my memories I burnt my poems I took my suitcase and left for the price of a life of freedom What led you to write this Yeah, this was a poem that I wrote after my divorce, actually. As I mentioned, it it was quite a public, it turned into a public event and it became sort of a subject of a, a smear campaign launched by the Islamic Republic. And it was quite a painful episode in my life where I came to the realization that sometimes in order to gain freedom, in order to have the freedom to be who you want to be, you have to give up some of the most precious memories and possessions in your life. And I think in this poem, what is really lost here are is the love, is the memories, the poems, mm. And what is left is a traveler woman with a suitcase facing an unknown future, an unknown destination, but mm-hmm. knowing that the reason that she leaves and the reason for the departure is to find a life of freedom, a life full of freedom. So powerful and evocative. And of course, just a quick mention that why your story became so visible was in part because you were, of course, married to a visible reformist who was the son of another well-known reformist. And I imagine those relations also had complicated consequences for you, not least because the reformist sort of held on to this idea that the system could be reformed from within mm. up until quite recently, actually, right? Yes, and yes. Only a few days ago, when Mir Hossein Musavi, I mean, other reformers have now admitted this publicly, that reforms from within might not be possible anymore. But only recently, less than a week ago, I think Mir Hossein Musavi, the leader of the Green Uprising, whose campaign you were working for during the 2009 Green Movement, only recently issued a letter saying that he no longer believed that the constitution of the Islamic Republic could bring about the kinds of reforms that Iranians are asking for. I wonder if you were surprised, if you've been sort of what you've thought about the reformist approach to these many years of people asking for fundamental change mm-hmm. and their ultimate inability until quite recently to admit to this. Again, I think what you say, which is really important, goes back to what you said before about personal being political. I think in my personal encounter and experience with the reformists in their sort of personal lives, and it was a really 
painful realization after years. It was that for them, the political act and sort of what they envisioned for the society seemed to be quite detached from their personal values and lifestyle. And to me, that was a level of hypocrisy and deeply problematic. And in the sense, one of the major reasons of divergences, ideological divergence, emotional divergence, it was, it, for me, it was a point of break and rupture when I realized that so what you're fighting for is not something that you actually follow in your personal life. And by that, mm. I mean specifically the body of the woman, the control and the sort of exercising power when it comes to controlling the woman's body and the woman's freedom. And this was something that I found quite disturbing because in, in surface, I had to constantly fight with those who did not want to believe that this is the reality of their lives in their personal lives. Then on the other hand, I also had to constantly struggle with making them understand that as far as, as long as you're not standing for the values that you're using as a slogans in your personal lives, you cannot claim that you're really loyal to those slogans. So I found that duality very problematic, which was the point of rupture for me. And of course, for years, when whenever there was a chance for, for change in Iran, all of us, I think, we saw that during Rouhani's presidency, for example, before and after, there is always a limit within which mm -hmm. they define the meaning of change. And that limit... Mm -hmm is very much defined by, still by the state ideological apparatus and sort of the ruling power being the Islamic Republic. And I remember very vividly that shortly following after the house arrest of Mirosein Musavi and Zahra Rahnavard and Mehdi Karoubi and the leaders of the Green Movement. Yeah, this, was, this is back in 2009-2010. I remember one night in London, I was actually conversing with nephews of Mirosein, not Mirosein, sorry, Hassan Rouhani. And we were talking about organizing protests and it was, they clearly suddenly and clearly changed, shifted their position and said that after the house arrest and after people taking to the streets in the day of Ashura and asking for the overthrow, overthrowing the regime, this is no longer our fight. And it was quite shocking mm -hmm. for me at that time and very disturbing. And it was the end of, of course, that friendship also back in the day. But I never forget that moment when there was this heated debate which turned to an argument very quickly mm. that they said that we did not pay the cost, our fathers did not pay the cost for this regime to be in power for you guys to come to the streets and take it away. Mm -hmm. So I think for me that was, again, those personal relationships, I think, were very critical or crucial for me to have a better understanding of what is happening within their households. What do mm -hmm. they really believe in and to what extent they believe in people's freedom? And then past week or so, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. there was this statement by Mihosein Musavi. You know, I think, although back in 2009, I had my serious doubts about Mihosein Musavi because of his position uh, during Khomeini's leadership and his kind of prolonged silence and detachment from politics and suddenly coming back to the political scene and all that. But over these past 13 years, I think one thing that Musavi has shown that other polit political activists and politicians such as Mohammad Khatami, Hassan Rouhani did not have the courage mm -hmm. and the honesty to, to show 
is that pro- progression, that process of change that I think distinguishes him from his political counterpart. All those mm-hmm. statements that he wrote, although I still have my personal reservations for the kind of Islamic discourse that he still uses in some of his statements. It doesn't actually really suit my very secular and laic sort of political beliefs. But I still respect him because I think that he has come a long way and at least tried to 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 change, to really yeah. change mm-hmm. from within and show that change regardless of its consequences. This is really interesting because, I mean, as you mentioned, other political actors haven't showed this. And in fact, Mohammad Khatami also up uh, something and in it, he is more conservative. He says that if we did stick to the letter and the spirit of the law, things could actually be fixed. The problem is that we're not. So that really does show the divergence between the two. But I really want to unpack a little bit more the conversation you, we were having before, which was about you saying you really sense this hypocrisy, mm-hmm. that the kind of political positionality that these reformists were taking was not reflected in their private lives. And I think what I understand by that is that they still believed in the control of the female body and the kind of Islamist discourse that is part and parcel of that. Did I understand that correctly, that you did not feel that the kind of freedom that they were asking for was indeed a reflection of the kind of freedom that people on the streets were asking absolutely, for? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think for me, that was a, that was a moment of distance and, and sort of parting my way, as we say. And I think, you know, what what happened during that time to me as, a, as an individual, for me, it was very clear that at some point, this question of bodily authority for women and this ongoing struggle for their basic right to choose their dress code will mm. one day become the engine of another protest. Mm. I always truly and deeply believed that one day women will erupt against this regime. But it was Mm. for those of us who were born and raised after the rise of the Islamic Republic and after the revolution, it was difficult to imagine how it looks like. I believe that it will happen, but I never could imagine how it looks like. Definitely not in the way that happened this time, which really just showed how this years of, 44 years of oppression has created piles and piles of anger and rage. And suddenly it has erupted like a volcano that all these women and girls who came to the streets and took sort of the leadership of this unprecedented movement mm-hmm. is, is really the continuation of that personal struggle that happened, I'm sure, to many other women also who have been fighting different layers of oppression in their families, mm-hmm. in their marriages, in their friendships, in their institutions that they work. Mm-hmm. So, and in that sense, I think what happened this time is really quite remarkable and so powerful that cannot be suppressed anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was there one moment during these past months of the Woman Life Revolution, I mean, Woman Life, woman life Freedom Revolution, <laughs> well, <is> a revolution. <laughs> that, that was most ev- evocative for you? I don't know. Was there one moment where, I don't know, I mean, it's, there were so many moments, there I would are, say. But yeah, there... there are so many moments. I mean, I would say 
really like every single photo of these mm. women who and girls who were on top of the cars, wheeling their headscarves in in the air and shouting death to the dictator. One of them, I believe, it was in my hometown, Mashhad. It was incredible mm. to watch that. That level mm. of courage was just unbelievable to me. Mm. Growing up in that city, I just cannot imagine what, how much you have to give up in terms of the consequences that this woman might come from a family that is quite conservative and they consider it against their honor and their values if a female member of their families end up in jail. It seems like they're just so fed up with the situation that they just couldn't care less. And to me, that was quite inspiring and in a way, opener. Also, I think it's just these girls who and women who have been blinded in their eyes and stare into the camera and smile with one eye, sending mm-hmm. messages to those who, sh- who shot them in the eye, saying that I can still smile and I will remain until the day of freedom. And I think these messages, I could never imagine that we see what we see today. And to me, that's just, you know, the most powerful, I think, scenes of this revolution. I mean, those are unbelievable images. And I remember a few years back watching The Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. And of course, there, they, as a form of punishment, they gouge out the eyes of some of these maidens, handmaidens. Yeah. And I mean, there's, they're just... I think there were some comparisons also on social media, pictures of Handmaid's Tale next to the pictures Mm -hmm. of these women from Iran and men Mm -hmm. also, not just men. Right. Yeah. Right. Also the men. Incredibly powerful female voice, the women's voices in Iran seem to have been underestimated for a long time, and now they have erupted. And I know you spoke at a conference at the University of Toronto about how the female voice in Persian poetry has also really not been taken into consideration, how some of the main celebrated the majority of the celebrated, except for Furuk Farrokhzad, of course, everybody's favorite. But mm. aside from her, how pretty much every other celebrated voice and how Persian poetry has been defined through the writings of male poets. And I wonder if you could just comment on that a little bit. I thought that was such a such an important argument that you made in that talk that you gave. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, you know, I was always fascinated by the role of women in Persian, in the Persian tradition, women poets in particular. And it always made me very angry whenever I looked at the historiography books and sort of major canon, those who actually have defined the major canons of poetry in the medieval period and later on, that the name of these fascinating, extremely powerful female poets have always been wiped off, written off the history or has been really just present in the margins of, of the history. And uh, in that talk, I tried to, to kind of give a brief summary of key poets, women poets in the past, who we might have just heard their names, but we don't know about their importance in, the tra- in forming and shaping the tradition. And as you know, growing up in Iran, especially in modern, the modern period, we keep hearing the name of just a couple of women poets, particularly Furukhafar Rukhsat, who, of course, is one of the most iconic iconic figures of Persian poetry and Simina Behbahani as well. But these are really just uh, daughters of poets who lived um, in, in earlier centuries and starting with Rabe, Bentekab, Ghuzdari, 
uh, we know her also as Rabe Balkhi, who is to me really one of the most revolutionary figures of, of the Persian poetic tradition. She was a poet princess, lived in the city of Balkh in today's Afghanistan. Also mm-hmm. the first victim of honor killing. She was killed in the hands of her brother mm-hmm. after her brother found out that she has fallen in love with one of his slaves, Baktosh. All we really know about her, we know that she was really wonderful poet. Um, what century is she situated? Uh, she's in 10th century. So mm-hmm. She's contemporary with Rudaki, who we all know mm-hmm. as the father of Persian poetry. Mm-hmm. And you know, my... I guess my contention always was that if he is the father, then who is the mother? And <laughs> although I, you know, I have my own problems with those terms, father right. and mother, but I think she really played such an important role in forming, sort of coining some of the most important terms that later on we have observed in, for example, the mystical tradition. She was the first one to, the first woman poet, and also the first poet really to write macaronic verse. Uh, multilingualism uh, in Persian poetry is tied to her name, but we don't hear this. Mm-hmm in the tradition. Nobody really um, talks about this. And, uh, and, you know, also her notion of love and how she always has been mystified by male historiographers and male poets who came afterwards and tried to kind of purify her poetic image and social image because they didn't want it to be tainted with what happened to her at the end of her life, meaning the honor killing, being killed in the hands of her brother. So I also wanted to demystify that image and show that she was a brave, courageous woman who actually dared to love and knew what love is and wrote beautiful poetry about this bodily experience of love. And also after her, we have Mahsati Ganjavi, we have Han Malik Khatun, who is also the contemporary of uh, Hafez and Obeid Zakani, uh, another princess poet who wrote beautiful, stunning sonnets and actually collected her own divan. But she wasn't the subject of research until only very recently. And when you read her sonnets, you see that there are like very interesting resonances with the work of Hafez. And my question always was and still is that what happened throughout the history of Persian literature that the voice of these women were pushed to the margins of uh, of the history. Mm-hmm. And what can we learn today in the middle of a woman-led revolution from this extremely male-dominant historiography that always marginalized the voice of the women? And I think it's a fear that is very relevant also to our today's struggle for freedom, is that this movement that started by the state murder of a Kurdish Iranian woman, Jina Amini, who's universally known as Mahsa, a name that was given to her because most of the Kurdish citizens of Iran are not allowed to use their Kurdish names in documents. So mm-hmm. the reason that we ha- we know her as Mahsa is because her real name, Gina, which is beautiful and means life, has been always marginalized and pushed under the carpet. And I think this kind of erasure of identity, erasure of identity mm-hmm. that we see in the case of Mahsa, whose body really symbolizes, I think, history, this history of erosion 
of the female identity can can at least invite us to think that how can we proceed with this revolution order mm. to avoid that in order to not let this revolution to be co-opted by those whose main values and goals for this revolution don't really match the spirit of this revolution, which is, to me, is very much feminine spirit. And a lot of people argue against this, saying that by calling this a female feminist revolution or a woman-led revolution, you're trying to reduce the sort of the goals or the, the values of this revolution to something that is not as important or not as radical. Well, that's wrong. I think that's quite misleading to argue. I think that if, it, and as that the slogan, the key slogan of this movement, woman, life, freedom, which comes from the years of a century of grassroots work of women, Kurdish women in Turkey, in, in Syria, in Iran, as that slogan makes it clear, if the freedom of women will be the core and the main sort of engine of a revolution, other, other goals and other aspirations will be also realized. By pushing that goal and the core of the slogan into the margins, we might actually end up facing another co-opted revolution like the 1979. And that is something that I think about every day, really. Sorry, that was mm-hmm. a really long answer mm-hmm. to you. No, that was that is really also important because ultimately that goes to the core of this revolution and the slogan, which is that there won't be freedom for anyone unless there is freedom for women, right? Absolutely. And I think you explained that really beautifully. And so I, do we see that reflected sort of this feminist voice, this feminist reclaiming of this revolutionary process? Do we see that reflected in the kinds of slogans that we hear in the streets. I want to, aside from Zanzendigi Azadi, of course, which in itself is the main slogan, but I wonder, is it also reflected in other slogans that you've picked up on in these protests? Um, So I think one of the really interesting, so the answer to that question is yes. One of the most fascinating slogans that I heard I think it was being chanted in one of the university campuses. I believe it was at Zahra University and then later on in Sharif University too, mm-hmm. which was, you are, sorry, he's, which means you're the pervert, I'm the free woman or I'm the noble woman. And to me, that you and I, that self-positioning against this, the gaze of the oppressor, which is also the gaze of the patriarch, which is the pervert, the, per, the pervert gaze mm-hmm. of the patriarch, mm-hmm. basically. To me, that was such a remarkable way of criticizing the dictatorship from the feminine position, from the position of the woman in this movement. Or we had uh, slogans that were borrowed from the time of the war when the word son was replaced by the word daughter. And I believe this happened after mass arrests of a lot of Iranian women students in the height of the protests, that I believe women were actually women students students were chanting that go and tell my mother that I that she doesn't have uh, a daughter anymore Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also we hear a lot of the name of a lot of female protesters particularly Mm -hmm. teens who were killed Nikosha Karami Sarina for Mm -hmm. example and many other names Mahsa herself Mohame Mahsa Hastin Bejangta Bejangin I think, which is basically another version of Je suis Charlie, what happened after Charlie Hebdo 
and this time it became just three Mahsa. And if saying that Mohammed Mahsa Hastim, I think what is important about that is that Mahsa or Jina came from this very marginal border city, border town, uh, Saqiz, um, in the mm-hmm. Kurdish region, right? Uh, and she somehow mm-hmm. manifested all the grievances, all the deprivations, economic, class-based, gender-based, mm-hmm. religious, ethnicity, everything was there. And I think it was mm-hmm. just fascinating to see how she represented all those grievances. And then I, at some point, there was also, in the slogans, we also saw this rage and vengeful kind of set of slogans, which were mostly kind of interpreted or understood as being anti-feminist or anti-women because they use... The use of swear words, basically. Exactly, slandering mm-hmm. kind of uh, slogans, which I wrote my own criticism about those. And I think it shows that our path to realize goals and aspirations of these revolutions is, is not an easy one because mm-hmm. you have to really just start reforming the language from within and try to address that. But at the same time, I think when these slandering slogans came out and were chanted in the streets, mainly they were trying, in effect, to reject the very legitimacy of the state and Iran's security forces to kind of delegitimize that system of oppression against women. So there was this double-edged effect about those about those slogans that I think was interesting. Yeah, I thought those were really interesting too. And I understood them as being a sort of gender equalizing kind of strategy because they're sexist swear words that exist in most languages, as far as I know, having to do with people's mothers and sisters' private parts. And but somehow young women shouting out those swear words to me seem to signal just the complete transgression of any kind of moral propriety. Yeah. And of course, when a system is based on a notion of morality that is at the core corrupt, I felt that those slogans really somehow countered that. But anyway, I was very interested in the debates that were ongoing back then about those very specific mm-hmm. slogans. Yeah. And I wonder now that we're talking about that, what you there was also a lot of controversy, of course, around the slogan, Mad Mihan Abadi, Man Homeland Prosperity, mm-hmm. that countered Zanzendigi Azadi, right? right? What did you, where did you fall on the spectrum on that? Because there were those who argued this is an, you know, inherently sort of patriarchal slogan that has come out. It's a counter-revolutionary slogan, in fact. And there were some who argued that, no, this is just trying to represent the male aspect of this revolutionary movement. I wonder what you thought of that slogan. Yeah, I think the slogan itself for the first time came out when Sherbina Hajipur uh, sang mm-hmm. the song For the Sake Of, which recently won the Grammy Award. Mm-hmm. And I think where he found it was just a tweet on Twitter, like a basically just one of those tweets that he picked in order to rhyme his lyrics. And and it's interesting that in that, in his song, Woman, Life, Freedom, Man, Homeland, I don't know, Prosperity, Mm -hmm. doesn't exactly rhyme together. They don't sit next to each other. The second time that we heard it, it was on university campus where where male students were chanting Woman, Life, Freedom, and female students were responding by saying mm-hmm. then the problem I think started from when this 
slogan started being co-opted by two groups, essentially. One, we saw it coming out in the in sort of the billboards of, of the government in Iran, but that was immediately understood by the opposition as the erasure of the word woman and also the erasure of the central slogan of the movement, which had its Kurdish roots. And we know that the, this uh, Islamic Republic for the past 44 years have, has been trying constantly to accuse the Kurdish movement as separatists. So they were mm-hmm. looking for an excuse, for an opportunity to erase the core slogan of the movement. And here they are, they had the wonderful opportunity of another sort of stanza that rhymed with the with Zanzandegi Azadi. So when they started using that, people in the social media started to react to that. Up to that moment, I think it was just a slogan like any other slogan that people were, particularly students in Iran, started to use it in university campuses. And what happened was that they were using it as a back and forth, sort of responding to each other. But then later on, those who adopted Mard Mihan Abadi, they, uh, or basically they tried to hijack the core slogan of the revolution, mm-hmm. one of the core slogans of the revolution, without referring to the first part of the slogan, which was deeply problematic, right? Mm-hmm. We saw some parts of the opposition also suddenly constantly referring to that part that as if there is no equivalent for woman life freedom, like Mm-hmm. aspirations of the revolution are lost. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that was the moment of controversy when people who really uh, wanted to keep and maintain the spirit of the revolution and its core slogan started to get a little bit worried and concerned about the intentions of those people who were using Madni Hanabadi without re- referring to, mm-hmm. to Zanzandegi Azadi. I think at this point it has become problematic for those reasons and it has become, Madni Hanabadi has become kind of a slogan on its own which represents the values that are still don't center women and their struggle as the sort of the center and the core of this movement and those who emphasize on woman life freedom and reject Mard Zandigi, Mard Mihan Abadi, argue mm-hmm. that this is essentially a feminist revolution and you, you can't really impose yet another sort of masculine mm-hmm. set of values on this revolution after just four months. So that's mm-hmm. my take on it. I personally don't mm-hmm. use it. I think woman life freedom is enough. And it in itself, it mm-hmm. entails all those values that Mad mm-hmm. and Bobby tries to convey. And also, but making that binary gender-based uh-huh. to me of a woman versus man, I find it uh-huh. again a little bit off-putting, to be honest. Thank you so much for that explanation. You just took us so beautifully through the chronology of the appearance of that slogan and its sort of progression and sort of devolution, if you will, (laughs) from something that was quite innocent to something that was then weaponized to really counter the revolutionary slogan. And have you seen any poetry coming out of, I know you're paying close attention to poetry, have you seen poetry written in the wake of the Women Life Freedom Movement that's really spoken to you? Any that you would perhaps be prepared or able to maybe read us a few verses from any poetry that you've loved from what's been produced for this movement in particular? Yes, indeed. I mean, there have been a uh, there have been outpouring of poetry and songs, mm-hmm. as you know, because you yourself mm-hmm. are an expert on this topic of uh, songs and lyrics. So it's been a really 
fascinating few months to just watch how, you know, this revolution is unfolding in the literary scene. I have to say, compared to 2009, this time, the level of pace and also the, the amount of the number of poetry, the number of poems mm-hmm. and songs that have been produced has been just so remarkable. And I've written about revolution and protest literature, but and so this is not the first time that we see poetry and revolution or poetry and politics being so intermingled. Uh, but I think what's really fascinating about this time is that, first of all, we see how performative these poems are in the sense that a lot of them immediately turn into songs or the poets sit in front of the camera and perform them and put the video mm-hmm. on social media. And I think that's just also has to do with the power of social media. And it's, uh, this is partly also a digital revolution, in my opinion. So mm-hmm. even poets have found the sort of the urgency of conveying their, their message through poetry um, and through sort of that platform, the audiovisual platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of these poems, sometimes we see that they're published as a sort of a video. One mm-hmm. thing that is interesting is that, I mean, as ex- expected, I guess, we see that the core slogan of the revolution, Woman, Life, Freedom, is very present in a lot of these poems. We see that the word woman or zan and tan in Persian, which, you know, and man. So zan is woman, tan is body, and man is I. These three, which beautifully also rhyme in Persian, and also then you have mihan, which means homeland. Mm. See a lot of poems playing with these words and trying to use that musicality in Persian poetry and also in Persian language to show this positionality. Particularly in the work of many women poets, we see that. And sometimes we see that Zan and Tan and Mihan and Roshan, which means light, beauty, means light, rhyme against Ahraman, which is in Zoroastrianism is the demon, basically, or the source of evil, here mm-hmm. being the regime, the government. So that's one fascinating, I think, the musicality of how words rhyme with woman, how they make it to poetry and songs. And another interesting aspect is that a lot of women poets draw on the tradition that I that I talked about. For example, we see the name of Rabe'e, the name of Tahereh, Qurratul Ain, Parvin Etesami, Farukhzad, you know, being documented in the poems. And these women poets sort of identify themselves as the resurrected body of these poets who lived throughout the history. Um, Mm-hmm. I really like the, you know, one of the poems by one of the living Iranian women poets, Kiranaza Musavi, for example, mm-hmm. um, in a poem that she refers to the cut hairs of Parvina Tasami, to the torn mask of Tahere Qoratul Ain, and the courageous and daring tongue of Rabbi Bentekab, mm-hmm. and also to the to the defiant um, spirit of Farukhzad. Also, we see that we see the name of Mahsa and also Gina being constantly rhymed or used in the poems. What is also really interesting is that sometimes we can see the deeply sort of anti-violent spirit of this revolution re- uh, unfolding in the poems of this of this 
episode. For example, mm-hmm. in a poem Azadeh Tahai wrote, which I think was fascinating, is that she was addressing the soldier mm-hmm. and saying that, don't take your gun in my face because I have brought my hairs to the battlefield. Mm-hmm. This, I think this kind of counter, almost like metaphorical presence of the gun on the one, si- one side mm-hmm. and the woman's hair on the other shows that mm-hmm. how hairs this time became the main weapon in the hand of the women. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, a lot of beautiful poems mm-hmm. that we saw coming out in this period in, in all different forms, really. I'm still waiting for more poems, and every day I wake up and I see a new poem. Another aspect that was really interesting was the multilingualism of this uh-huh. of this period, because as you know, from Baluchistan to Khuzestan to like people were out uh-huh. and chanting. So some of these poems also emphasized on that multilingual aspect of this revolution. Uh-huh. And there was a poem by Mehdi Ganjavi, for example, who said that today in what language Iran is crying? Is it Arabic? Is it Persian? Uh-huh. Is it Turkish? Is it Kurdish? Is it Baluchi? Uh-huh. And then the poem goes sort of from one language language in another. Mm-hmm. So these are, I think, novel mm-hmm. aspects and mm-hmm. dimensions of poems in this period that we didn't see mm-hmm. in previous periods. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you for leading us into that field of poetry and the evocative sort of nature of the beautiful hair, right? Yeah. The allegory of the hair fighting the violence of the gun is really just so, so powerful. And Fatima Jan, is there a place, I'm just curious for anybody listening and who would like to check in on this poetry, is anybody collecting these on any sites or are you just finding them on different people's personal social media sites? And I assume nobody's started some kind of site to... There is a site, actually, a poet friend of mine, Sepide Jodairi, started on Telegram. It's called Poetry 01 or Shere Hezarachar Sadoyek. So... Uh, she has done a fantastic job so far. She has, um, she is still collecting. In fact, every day, she is just posting and poems. Whatever is written inside and outside of Iran um, these days, she's she's collecting all of them there. So. Wonderful. That's a really wonderful resource for those who want to go read some of the poetry that you've so beautifully mentioned. Thank you so much, Fatima John. If I may just close with just a just maybe two more questions. One being, as somebody who's so intimately familiar with Iran and the work being produced there by writers and poets, what do you see as your role? Um, you know, it's situated outside yet so intimately involved with everything happening there what do you how do you sort of how do you navigate through your days here yeah Yeah. um I mean I guess my I try to use my voice and also what whatever my skills I guess as mainly as a poet scholar to as much as I can to be the voice of mainly not that I'm not trying to be the voice of protesters of course I'm trying my best to be as active and vocal as I can but to Mm -hmm. follow up on the situation and the status of the imprisoned students, academics, mm-hmm. and poets and writers. So that's been one thing that I have put in priority over the past few months, mm-hmm. trying to write statements with the help of some colleagues to protest against the dismissal and purges of professors mm-hmm. and academics has been one thing that I've 
I've been trying to, you know, constantly to keep up with or Mm -hmm. part of different gatherings and panels as yourself have have been very active. I've tried to also to be present in non-Persian speaking media because I think it's extremely important to give a perspective that is not only focused on only a limited version or aspect of the of what is happening on the ground in Iran and because it's very easy for this revolution to be hijacked by the hands of the Islamic Republic for example that have been extremely mm-hmm. active over the past four decades outside the country or radical actors who who's you know who kind of position could be then eventually ultimately dangerous for the fate of the Iranian mm-hmm. people so it's been a really difficult path to navigate to, to try to to keep everything into account on a personal mm-hmm. level it's i found i find it quite challenging to be honest it, it's to have my family back in iran my my parents and my sister who have been also participating in the protests over the past few months so it's been a really difficult time to to wake up to the news every day mm-hmm. but i guess Every, this is not just me. It's it's really a tough time for all Iranians across the globe. And going to the protests, I think, um, uh, just being present there physically was one thing that I think was quite helpful for me to at least be there, be out there and put my body, although it's not mm. nothing close to what these brave people in Iran are risking their lives every day. But yeah, that's what has been happening. Definitely difficult, both exhilarating and at times devastating and yet hopeful period. Uh, My last question to you tomorrow is the 11th of February, 44th anniversary of the revolution. Your feelings? I think for the first time in the past 39 years that I've been alive and 23 years of it was spend under the rule of the Islamic Republic. I think for the first time, I feel that there is an alliance between all fronts of uh, the regime's opposition inside and outside of the country, those who have paid the price for freedom in the country. For the first time, I see an alliance, which I think is very empowering and helpful, hopeful. And for the first time, I feel that uh, we might actually get somewhere. I also think that the path to freedom is going to be a rocky one. It's not going to be very easy and it's not going to be short. And today I'm particularly happy because over the past few days, we saw the mass release of the political prisoners, although... We were talking about this before the show that it can be very easily used by the government in order to as a bargaining chip with the West. And we have to be very careful and diligent to not let that happen. But I think it really just shows how powerful this movement has become. And I don't Mm -hmm. think that this government would have stepped back or retreated Mm -hmm. and actually let so many people out hadn't it been because of such a defiance and resistance that Iranian people inside and outside of country have shown over the past five months. So I think this time is different in that sense. And I really hope that the next year will be a year of realization of those dreams. And I think we are one step closer to the victory and to the freedom that we have been fighting for. 
Thank you so much, Fatima Shams. It's been such a pleasure to have you on this program and to really get your wonderful insights. And I so appreciate you and the work that you do. And thank you so much for leading us into these different worlds that you're so deeply engaged with. Thank you so much, Nahi. It was such a pleasure. And I that the, the feeling is mutual. And I think what you're doing in archiving these voices and memories is extremely valuable and I thank you for that and for having me on this podcast. Thank you so much Dr. Fatima Shams, poet and assistant professor of Persian literature at the University of Pennsylvania, author of A Revolution in Rhyme. Thank you. Take care. Thank Thank you for listening. My guest was Fatima Shams, poet and assistant professor of Persian literature at UPenn. You were listening to an episode of Woman, Life, Freedom, All In on Iran, broadcast to you from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm your host, Nahid Siamdust. Until next time, Jinjian Azadi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Zendegi Azadi.